Hello, hello, hello. This is Tooth Be Toad. This is Dr. Walter Aka. I know. Hey, I'm the guest here today. He he is a guest. Horton. Horton. (laughs) Well, I'm Dr. Leroy Horton. And then we all know uh, Dr. Kyle Dumpert. He is actually rotated now as the guest for today. Um, That's right. But so I'm I'm excited. I'm excited because he's coming on to talk about, you know, a life, um, the life as a as a rural dentist. You know, he lives in uh, Bedford, Pennsylvania, very small town, two hours outside of uh, Pittsburgh, three hours outside of Philly, about what, two hours outside of uh, Erie, Pennsylvania? Um, Three hours outside. Three hours and then three hours, three hours outside of um, West Virginia. So as you can see, he's pretty centralized, but not really right (laughs) from any major, major city. Two to three hours, Pittsburgh, Philly, D.C., Baltimore can get to all of them. That's it. But it takes like three hours, right? Yep. Yeah. And so that's it. So you're, you're, you're close enough, but far enough. Right. And so yep. I wanted to ask you the first question that I have for you is in your town, how many dentists are there? Uh, but before you get to that, I've been inspired since uh, I stopped or uh, kind of <laughs> up the game. So let me do this. Hey, let's go. We've lost my information right there. Click the QR code. <laughs> We've lost all credibility. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Listen, greatness inspires greatness. What nice. can I say? That's, that's, what, right. you wanna, that's, that's right. what you want to call it. Uh, <laughs> we'll pretend that that's the truth. But okay, so so now that everybody can, you know, uh, scan your QR code, let's talk about how many how many dentists are in uh, Bedford, Pennsylvania. Uh, right now, there are currently. Three, four, six, uh, six dentists in Bedford County. Six dentists. Oh, the and, whole county. In the whole, yeah, right. In the whole area, right. And, wow. and, yeah, the, yeah. and how many specialists? Like, let's just say how many orthodontists? One. How many periodontists? In the county, zero. How many um, <laughs> prosthodontists? Zero. Endodontists? In the county, zero. Right. And so... Just with that being said, how many of these procedures do you have to do yourself? Pretty much all of them. Um, orthodontist, I can I can get to. Uh, he's right in town, but um, endodontist is um, about a, a, a 30 day wait to get in to see him. Um, oral surgery is probably six month wait to get in to see uh periodontist closest one is about 45 minutes i'm kind of right in between two of them so uh, i think they're probably two to three months to get in to see a periodontist so So, what what i'm hearing kyle is that four out of five dentists do not want to live in bedford (laughs) why why are you there and i think that's that that's a that's an honest question like what's the appeal for someone who can essentially make a living anywhere to be in a rural town. So uh, what brought me here is I was born and raised here. So it's easy to come back to your hometown. Um, there's some benefits and challenges that come along with that. Um, benefit is everybody knows you uh, go to the grocery store, go to Walmart. Um, you know, a lot of people there. Bad thing is if you don't like that, if you don't like that community or seeing your patients out in public or working on your, third grade teacher or your high school teachers or any of your classmates going through school that are still in town. um, That is something that you have to deal with. So there is a a history there also that, you know, if you weren't that great a person going through growing up in town, then you're probably not going to have that great of a practice. Uh, People can reimagine themselves and, you know, we all have gone through some growing pains, but um, that's, that can be a challenge, especially, if people think there's a prior relationship there and they don't look at you as a professional, they look at you as, Hey, we went to school together. Can you cut me a deal uh, on this? I, I don't, I shouldn't have to pay the bill. You, you're not going to send me to collections. Are you? And yeah, I am. Um, that's the agreement we had set up. So th- there are some challenges along with that, but to answer your question, aside from growing up here, um, there's a lot of business benefits as far as, my marketing expense is zero. Uh, so I, I don't spend any money on marketing. Um, other benefits are 
competition is really minimal. I, it, I don't even look at it as competition. It's a dental community here. There's enough patience for everybody to go around. There's no need to kind of fight for patience. Um, there's a couple people that advertise on billboards and stuff, but most of it is word of mouth or, or Google advertising. So um, that that is a benefit as long as well as you can pretty much practice however you want and the, the type of procedure you want to do, there's a demand for it. So if you're willing to put in the continuing education and get up to that level, uh, you're able to see that type of practice. Okay. So everybody says, you know, um, if you want to make money, you should go live in a rural area. If you're a dentist and you want to make money, why? Because mm -hmm. if you're in the city in one building, you might have six dentists in one building. Mm -hmm. Or, yep. you know, if, if you're looking around and you're in the street, if you're in an intersection of a street, you may see a dentist across the way from you on the other side. On the, So you have a lot of congestion for, for dentists. So basically the patients to dentist um, ratio is skewed, right? It's very small, right? right. So would you agree that if you want to make good money, Definitely, you need to go into the rural area. And then can you tell me what's kind of like the caveat to that? What's the opposite of that? What's basically, what, what part would you disagree with in that statement? Oh, we lost him. Well, let's see if that connection comes back. There it is. Sorry about that. Google has a VPN that likes to connect and keep me safe. <laughs> uh the question was repeat that the question was whenever you hear anybody talking right you hear um hey if you want to make good money you need to go to the rural areas right mm -hmm. right and, and that's something that we've been taught for a very long time but the problem is if you um are in the city you'll have a lot of dentists you could be right. in a building and have six dentists in that building right right uh, and if you're in the rural, yeah. Do you believe that you would actually make good money? And then what would be something that people don't, you know, if you had to finish that sentence, what would be something that people don't tell you about living in the rural area and making that money? So, yes, I, I think there is a greater potential to make money. If you're looking at the overall business expense, um, you have the opportunity to own your own building, your own real estate. Um, so, you can be in control of your destiny more if you own your own property. Uh, you can make the changes you want. You can, you're not stuck in a triple net lease where other people are benefiting. So that's, you, know, you here have multiple sources of income. Um, owning the real estate is a source of income that you're not paying to somebody else. You're generating money from that asset that you can later capitalize on. So outside of dentistry, that that's one way you can make more money. Um, second way is competition <clears throat> is pretty minimal. Um, like I said, there's you know, six practicing dentists within the whole county. Um, county population is about 55,000. Um, the downside of that is being rural. There is a high Medicaid population. So it depends on the kind of practice you want to set up. Uh, I bought a practice that was had a lot of Medicaid patients and I've transformed it uh, to an, a PPO practice. And now I'm transitioning that to more of a fee for service practice. So as people get to know you, get to know your skills, happy with the practice, happy with how they're treated and the results of the work, uh, you can slowly start to cut out those insurances and because patients don't have many other offices or options to go to, you can set it's a little bit easier, in my opinion, based on my experience, that um, you can change that perception of relying on insurance to dental insurance can help pay for your benefits. But it's not the end all be all uh, as far as payment goes. Uh, let me ask you, because I think you bring up a good point of phasing out low, low reimbursing insurance, especially mm -hmm. state insurance. Let's say I'm the layperson and we're playing yep. devil's advocate. And I say, well, it sounds to me like you just want to make more money. 
Right. right. Can you school me as to the dollars in dollars out as to why someone would make the decision of phasing out the low reimbursing insurances versus maintaining them as a large part of their practice? So I'll talk on Medicaid first, because that was the first one I phased out. I believe it was it was when I was in dental school. So I'm going to say around 2011, uh, Pennsylvania Medicaid stopped covering a lot of procedures. So uh, dentures went to once in a lifetime. They, they covered extractions. They covered um, amalgams, composite restorations, root canals, crowns, uh, perio. Those things weren't covered. So they were coming in. They could get their cleaning, their fillings, uh, one set of dentures and some extractions. Uh, and, and that really, I think, pushed people to practice in a way that wasn't ideal. Uh, patients with that have the expectation of, I don't have to pay for anything. My insurance covers it. So when somebody needs, has a four surface amalgam and the tooth is breaking down, uh, best option would be a crown for that patient. That patient doesn't see the value of investing in a crown. My insurance covers a filling. Let's just do a filling there. Okay. They talk the dentist into doing a filling, the tooth continues to chip and break apart. It's now, you know, a, a, you're putting a four surface composite in there. The tooth breaks six months later because ideally it needed a crown. You do another filling because um, you don't want to take the tooth out. It's still a, a savable tooth, but because of limitations with Medicaid, you don't get paid for it that second time, third time, fourth time. So you're doing lower quality, lower reimbursing work. You're redoing it multiple times because dentists uh, on a whole want to help people, don't want to take something that can still be functional when the patient, um, when their mindset is, I shouldn't have to pay anything out of pocket, my insurance covers it. So Medicaid office, that is one of the challenges. The other challenge is typically that patient population, you have a 50% no-show rate. So again, you're not putting the money in uh, out of your own pocket. So you don't value the care that you're receiving. So it's easy to blow off appointments that you're not financially invested in. Um, so those types of practices have to overbook with the expectation of half these people aren't going to show. If they are going to show, then we're going through treatment a lot faster, maybe cutting corners um, because they're lower reimbursing. You have to figure out different supplies that you can maybe downgrade to. So it, you're not losing money anytime somebody walks through the door. So you really have to look at your expenses and do that high volume of care and Maybe you're, you're doing a filling once, and if it doesn't work, you're taking a tooth out. So you're edentulating a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't need it. Um, I for, think the lay, for the lay person, I may not realize it. When you say low reimbursement, let's say your fee is for something, X is yeah. 500. Yeah. A PPO might pay you 400. Medicaid, okay. comparatively, might pay you $50. Okay. Right. Yep. And maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I think some yeah, people don't really understand like right. how big that differential is right. to where a lot of times you're losing money seeing a patient, especially in a way that is providing quality and time and all that. So when a practice sets their fees, there is a national fee schedule that you can look up your, your zip code uh, and find out what percent of your, um, where your fees should be with in a certain percentage. So if you're at the 80th percentile uh, of your fee range, then you're higher than 80% of, uh, or you're at the 80th percentile of what that is. So that's the goal from my understanding. Most practice consultants want you at that 80th percentile. They don't want you at the highest rate. They don't really want you any lower than that. In my area, PPO insurances are, um, if I'm at that 80th percentile, so let's say a crown is you know, 1200 bucks. They're going to reimburse somewhere in the seven to $800 range. Um, Medicaid isn't going to pay for a crown. If it's a 
let's, let's say a, a four surface filling. Um, if you're at the 80th percentile at $385 for a filling, PPO may reimburse you for $150 of that in my area. Uh, Medicaid would probably reimburse half of that, so about $75. So considerable write-off, so you have to have that McDonald's mindset of, I'm going to get in as many people at a low cost and really have my system set up so I can you know, have that dental mill of people coming in and out as fast as possible. Right. Let me ask you a question, Kyle. Um, so I'm playing devil's advocate, and we always have to preface it by saying that, but really, we, we got to stop saying that. Uh, everybody knows that we play devil's advocate. We, we, all, we all know who we play devil's advocate. But so, so Kyle, so you stopped taking Medicaid, right? Yeah. Yep. Where are those patients going to go when there aren't that many other dentists that will treat them? Because if everybody does what you did, then who's going to see those patients? And then that brings me on to the next. Yeah, that brings me on to the next issue, which is dentists seem to get mad whenever the government steps in and says we're gonna, you know, uh, give license to some of these advanced, you know, um, practitioners. What is it? The oral health specialist or oral oral health health specialist? Exactly. So we basically say we don't want to see these patients, but then we get mad when (laughs) somebody does it. You know, and sees them and then says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, they're not dentists and they're not. Do do you see what I'm saying? So what happens to those patients and especially in the rural area? Are we going down the uh, the government path already? Well, no, I mean, I'm listening. (laughs) I'm going, going, you know, it's great, you know, but hey, what's going to happen to those patients? And is it is this something that might just be? the issue with dentists and dentistry in general, which is we want to, to basically keep the lights on. Right. right. But we're looking at it and saying, but what about those people? It's yeah. not their fault that Medicaid isn't paying. Right. right. It's not, it's really not yeah. their fault. So what about them? Like, what do we talk about? How do we, how do we deal with that? Especially in a rural area with six dentists. Right. No, it's definitely a problem. Access to care. You hear a lot about, you know, waiting periods to get in to see providers. Um, access to care. Nobody takes Medicaid. In town, we do have a community health clinic. Um, they are pretty maxed out. I've heard some patients can't get in. They're doing a limited number of procedures. So they don't have an oral surgeon. They're not doing perio. They're not doing implants. They're not doing any of those procedures to get in to see an oral surgeon. Um, I've heard some patients, the closest oral surgeon is like a three, three and a half hour drive away. Um, and again, you're waiting six months to do that. So at that point, those patients are being seen because pain is a powerful motivator to get them to come in and pay that money out of pocket to, to get care. Uh, but again, that option is you're losing your teeth. You're not healthy. You're not taking care of yourself. So I, I think the problem and I'll try to not go too down, too deep into a rabbit hole, but uh, as with anything, when the government steps in and creates a welfare program and gives out handouts, it's with the best intentions because people are complaining, we, we can't get access to care, I'm in pain, I can't get in to see the dentist. Government's role is to try to alleviate those social burdens uh, on the general population, but the way they go about it uh, creates a, um, a dependency mindset where people all of a sudden, well, if I don't have to pay for it, I can drink whatever I want. I can eat whatever I want. I don't have to take care of them. Um, yeah, I, I do meth, but can you, why, why don't I, can I get my teeth fixed for free? I, I didn't do this to myself. It was the drugs that did it to me. Well, okay. And in, in, in all honesty, and I'm going to be fair here in all no. fairness, if a patient has PPO, they still really don't care about the work that you do <laughs> because they're like, well, my insurance paid for it. And, you know, I, it, I feel like no matter what patient. It, it, it's that same mindset right. uh, because it's not coming out of the pocket. That's it. The PPO patients uh, have a little bit different mindset because there are some copays involved. Uh, if it's money coming out of their paycheck where the employer doesn't cover 100 percent of it. Uh, but again, that, it's that mindset of. Well, it's a benefit for my employer if they do cover 100% of my co-pays, uh, if they cover my my monthly premiums, then and they have 100% coverage up to $1,500 a year. It's why well, I only want to do what my insurance covers because 
we have this mindset of insurance knows what's best for me when we all know that isn't the case. Dental insurance is basically a coupon discount plan that gives you an, a limited number of benefits. So creating that, uh, educating the patient in that regard, uh, but addressing the Medicaid issue or the access to care issue, it, it's a tough one because you want the ultimate way for to eliminate that access to care issue is eliminate the disease. And to eliminate the disease, it's change your behaviors. So it, it's um, if somebody's going to pay for the treatment, there's no incentive for the patient to, to take care of themselves unless they're truly value having teeth in their mouth and having a healthy mouth. Okay. Well, well, let me, let's, let's unpack that even a little further. So we brought up the, the notion of oral health therapists, right? Right. So they're a mid-level provider that could potentially in theory, go out and serve underserved areas right. um, at a more affordable um, cost to the state, to the insurance, to the patient and so forth. Right. That reminds me of similar talk back in the day when dentures were becoming an accredited profession. Yep. It was the same exact story. It was, they're going to serve the underserved. They're going to go where dentists aren't going because dentists don't want to go to these places. And where are dentists now? They're on every block. Yep. They are hiring dentists and yep. they're not in the underserved areas. Right. Right. And I think one of the things that we are concerned about as dentists is that the state's answer, you're right. They started with a good intention of, hey, we're going to provide care for people that don't have it. They're working off a budget and they reimburse extremely low. And I know that they know that money is an issue because during COVID, what did Medicaid do to all their reimbursements? They skyrocketed. And I don't know if, if you were taking Medicaid at the time, but an extraction went from, um, I think it was like $59 for an extraction to 191. Wow. Surgical extraction, you know, they all the classifications went up because they said, we got to get patients into the dentist and keep them out of the emergency room for extractions. Right. Right. And so I guess my question to you is, do you see, since we're on the issue of government, do you see the mid-level provider as a band-aid that we know is not going to work as opposed to taking care of the actual problem, which is pay dentists enough to be able to see the patient and pay the bills while doing it? So I, I see the, from what I know about dental therapists, uh, like you said, the, the goal was to get them into underserved areas, but with the denturists, they too aren't going to the underserved areas. They're going to places where they can make money too. Because ultimately that's, uh, you know, if you go into any kind of training, your ultimate goal, unless your passion is teeth and you want to work for free, your ultimate goal is to make some money while you're doing it. That's how the world goes around. Um, the, for dental therapists, I see the benefit because as long as they're well-trained, um, I have an expanded function dental assistant that's legal in Pennsylvania. So she went to school, she got training, she can do my fillings for me. So I, drill the tooth. She puts the fillings in. I hate doing fillings. So that allows me to delegate that to somebody else who can practice to the highest level of their license and frees up time for me to practice to the highest level of my license, all while being under the same roof. Uh, the dental therapists that are able to go out on their own and maybe just be uh, monitored remotely, I think that can be an issue. Um, especially when they're getting into, I, I think they're able to do simple extractions, uh, but we all know a, a simple extraction can turn surgical very easily. Um, and something that you think can come out easy can put up a, a lot bigger fight than you think is going to. So I see a lot of potential there for harm to the patient. Um, but in Pennsylvania, hygienists are allowed to administer local anesthesia. So again, that frees up time for me if the hygienist is able to anesthetize their patients for scaling root planning, or she doesn't have a patient in, my, in the chair. She can come to a patient that's waiting on me, numb them up for me. I can hit the ground running when I get in there. 
Uh, so I don't have to numb the patient. I drill the tooth and I don't have to fill the patient. Um, so it allows me to see more patients. So if they're, if they're done in a way or if they're utilized in a way that keeps the patient safe and still has the overview of a dentist that has had that training, has gone through dental school, can handle any of the um, complications that might arise, I see a huge benefit in that. Um, outside of that, I, I, I think practicing on your own on what amounts to a, a one or a two year degree when we've all put in at least eight years is um, a little risky. Let me ask you this, Kyle. So let me change subject real quick. Keeping up with the Joneses, right? We have that issue. A lot of dentists in the city, if you see your neighbor that just got a CBCT, for example, right? Three-dimensional image. You're like, wait a minute, now I need to get a CBCT, yep. right? But when you're in the rural areas, is that something that you guys have issues with? Like, do you have to keep up with the Joneses? And the reason why I ask that is because that determines what your overhead is. And your overhead is what gives you your profitability. Right. So can you break uh, that down? Honestly, I think it's the opposite. When you're in a rural setting, um, the practice I bought was still doing pin retained amalgams, four or five surface amalgams, patching everything. Uh, there's so no like lasers, no like no, CBCT, no lasers, no, no, no I, technology. I, mean, I, have, I have a CBCT in my office. Uh, that the oral surgeon had one. They closed that office down, and so I have the CBCT in the office or in the, in the town. Um, there's no laser dentistry other than my little diode laser. Nobody else has a laser. Uh, the orthodontist has an intraoral scanner. Nobody else has an intraoral scanner. Um, nobody else has a, an in-office mill for making crowns. Uh, so if you're, and, and I don't think this is necessarily just rural, maybe a more so because there's not as many options to go to, but right. dentistry, it's very easy to get in your own little office, your own little island, uh, do the minimal amount of required continuing education every year, not have anybody overlook your work. So there's nothing really pushing you to learn more, do better other than yourself or your professional colleagues. And if you don't have that, where it's just you and you're fine with status quo doing uh, copper bands and large amalgam buildups that you learned 40 years ago in dental school, it's worked for 40 years. Why, why should I change it? So, well, so with that being said, do you think that technology makes people better, makes dentists better? Does that make sense? Do you think yes. that if you were to have one office that had all these like bells and whistles and all this technology and another one that really didn't, do you think that a patient would say, well, because this person has all this technology, they must be a better dentist? Or do you think that it really doesn't even matter? It's just a matter of like you said, taking advanced classes and so forth. Does that make sense? Because patients look at new stuff and go, it must be, it's shiny, it's new, it must be right. better. I think there is a certain percentage of patients that like going to an office that is up to date, um, has the latest technology that can be efficient if they can use that technology appropriately. Um, I don't necessarily think it makes the dentist better. Uh, you guys have placed way more implants than I ever will. Uh, but with bringing technology in, doing a surgical guide, comb beam guided or uh, um, surgical guided surgery, a monkey can place an implant that way. But if it's uh, if you run into complications where you have to lay the flap, where the bone isn't what you thought it would be, if you don't have the skill set, technology can also get you into uh, where you're in over your head if, if things don't go as planned. So having a grasp of that technology is, is definitely crucial. Do you think that patients know the difference? Because the, the, the way I like to think about it is if I was your layperson, and let's say I'm going in for prostate surgery or... Mm -hmm something internal that's a bit more grave than our oral oral cavity, right? If someone was to say, yes, we use the latest imaging technology and, you know, orthoscopic techniques uh, to be less invasive and blah, 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 blah. In my head, I see that not only as a quality, but as a way of receiving treatment that's 
um, less rudimentary and potentially less invasive than before. Is it reasonable that your average patient would have that same view at dentistry and say, oh, okay, if they got more technology, they have more information, they can be more precise, they can be more, you know, however you want to put it. Because we may know the difference, right? right? But we're, we're in the industry. How do you right. think we need to explain that to the layperson that it's not always all about the bells and whistles? Right. I, I think it comes down to one, patient comfort. Uh, number of appointments, length of appointments, and cost would probably be the three biggest things that I, I think about when um, it comes to patients and how they perceive technology. So for instance, uh, when I bought the practice, I was doing traditional impressions for a crown. Do an impression, send it to the lab, you're going to wear a temporary crown that I'm going to make chair side. You're going to wear that for two, two and a half weeks until the crown comes back. Then you're going to come back in for a 10, 15, 20 minute appointment to get the crown put into place. Sometimes we're gonna have to numb you back up for that appointment if it's uncomfortable for you. Uh, patients don't like the goop in their mouth. So once you introduce an intraoral scanner, they can see it on the screen. Oh, you mean I don't have to get that goo in my mouth? Great, uh, cuts down on time, cuts down on expenses, uh, makes the patient more comfortable, number one for the patient add in an in-office mill. Hey, remember how you had to, used to wear a temporary crown? We don't have to do that anymore. I can mill you out a crown in 45 minutes. Uh, zirconia crown that's gonna fit the same exact way that comes from the lab. Uh, just hang out, go run some errands, come back. We'll get this cemented into place. You don't have to worry about coming back another day. You don't have to worry about temporary crowns. Uh, you don't have to get worry about getting numbed up again because you're still gonna, uh, tooth is still gonna be asleep by the time we cement this in. Uh, wow, that's really cool. I can see it on the screen. That's a lot different from how the, the rest of my crowns were doing. So right. um, that takes care of comfort. That takes care of patient time, time in the chair. Um, I think patients struggle with the, the cost aspect. Um, they like the new technology, but um, sometimes they might equate that to, oh, it, it's going to cost me more money. So it, it depends on that type of patient. If they're um, if they want to pay the cheapest price possible, there's always somebody cheaper to find to do it. Uh, if it, if time isn't a concern for you, but there are other patients that say, I appreciate, you know, saving me time, time is money. So, um, I'm okay paying a little bit higher fee for that access to technology. Well, this, this is a good segue because if you're thinking about the cost of all that stuff that, you know, for you to bring this technology into your office, right? Mm -hmm. How are you as a private owner able to compete with, say, a large corporation who has capital investment backing it, who has the ability to buy stuff cheap because because they're buying volume yep. and they open, let's say, you know, Pacific Dental Services or Heartland, they open a practice half a block away from you right. and they're able to throw everything in that practice from your CBCT to your your wave endodontics, your uh, trio scanner. What do you, where do you see the industry going for a solo practitioner like yourself in the, in the context of what we're seeing with the corporatization of dentistry that can provide all this stuff very cheap and sometimes, you know, kind of the Walmart method where they'll just undercut their prices until you go out of business right. before they raise their prices to, you know, conventional and, and normal uh, costs. Real quick, uh, Kyle, do you guys even have a DSO in your town? Yes. Okay. Go yes, ahead and do. speak on that then. Uh, so it comes down to pieces of the pie again. If we look at patients as piece of the pie or um, patients as a whole, there's a certain type of patients that they just want to do what it is covered by insurance. Uh, they don't care who they see, who's treating them. Uh, I think that is a great patient that can go to a, a DSO model because they struggle with getting dentists to come to rural areas because of quality of life. Uh, whether it's the dentist or the spouse doesn't want to be in a small town away from, you know, the, the glitz and glamour of a city. Um, what I've seen is rural areas. The dentist will usually stay on the length of their contract uh, a year or so, and then they move on to another dentist comes in. So to patients where, the continuity uh, of care with the same provider doesn't matter. 
that model is a great access to care for them. For patients who want that relationship, who need that trust with their provider, need somebody that's going to be there for the next 10, 15, 20 years, if there's going to be a problem arise that uh, it's not a different treatment plan with a different provider every time they come in, then that private practice model is always going to, in my opinion, uh, have a place because uh, it's in in rural areas and to the same extent, I think cities also with uh, the generation of dentists coming out, there's a lot of mobility uh, moving around the country. So um, once you own your practice, you're going to be there traditionally for a while, uh, unless back to, to Perio residency. Um, but real quick, Kyle, um, on, on, was out you, Roy. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, with that being said, ready. Um, you said something that was kind of interesting. You said that, you know, even with, uh, corporations, the doctors will come in and, and leave after like a year of contract. Right. But yeah. that would also speak to you being able to hire people. Right. How hard is it for you as a, a practice owner who wants to maybe cut back on hours or see more patients to bring in an associate if no one wants to live in these rural areas? Or am I misspoken when I say that no one wants to live in the rural areas? And is it easy for you to find an associate? Definitely a struggle. Uh, as I said, people don't want to come here. DSOs have a lot bigger marketing budget. Uh, a greater net that they can put out there, money to invest in attracting people with sign-on bonuses, uh, guaranteed salaries that a, a private office typically doesn't have the resources for. A DSO also has a network of uh, mentor dentists that, or continuing education that they keep in-house that they can entice residents to, or not residents, uh, associates to, um, entice them to come work for them. General dentists or private practices don't have that or are reluctant to offer that to invest in somebody that may just leave in a year. Um, so that's, that's definitely a challenge. Same thing when it comes to selling a practice. There are lots of rural dentists that are looking to retire. There is nobody after years of searching and they end up closing their doors. And that, uh, or, you know, a, a friend of mine who uh, was in the late stages of his career, dealt with cancer and passed away, uh, the, the practice consultant uh, that works with my office and his worked for months and months trying to find somebody. It was a highly profitable fee-for-service practice in Northwestern Pennsylvania. And several people came to look at it. They did some, uh, worked a couple of days in the practice and what could ultimately become a cash cow of a business um, as a fee for service with in his town, there was only one or two other dentists. So there was literally no competition, but that lifestyle wasn't attractive to all the potential buyers. Uh, they did end up selling to a, um, another older dentist who had some challenges earlier in his career, but uh to be a young person coming into a, a practice like that, it's, you know, you're miles ahead buying something like that versus working for a DSO. Part of the issue is it's hard to find those practices also because they don't know where to look for them. Gotcha. I got a question for you, buddy. I'm going to put you in a hot seat. Okay. Hope, hope you appreciate it. So I'm going to ask you a couple uh, real succinct yes no type questions and then that's leading into my bigger philosophical question okay do you agree that to to whatever extent it's the responsibility of the um say dental education industry to produce providers that will go to high need areas or underserved areas yes okay do you agree as, as your story exemplifies that being from somewhere that's rural underserved um, makes it much more likely that you will go back to these areas. Yes. Okay. So when I was looking down earlier, I was I had, prepping for this. I had looked up this study uh, by Amelia Goodfellow that talked about what are some of the things that are precursors to people going back to underserved areas, whether these okay. areas are rural, you know, more um, farm communities, agricultural communities, whether these are uh, ethnic communities. Right. 
And the, the gist of every population as you break it down is you're more likely to go back to where you come from. Right. So I want to know what your view is when it comes to potentially creating either um, scholarships, holding positions uh, for people, whether it's due to their geographic background, their ethnic uh, background, um, their financial background, holding positions in these schools to create providers who in some cases are 10, 20 times, 30 times more likely to go back and practice in, in these underserved areas. So I was a benefit of a, a scholarship that was set up by a dentist in Bedford that uh, ended up working at University of Pittsburgh, where I went to dental school. Uh, so I, I received his scholarship. Um, it helped. A As far as scholarships go, uh, a couple thousand dollars a year toward the astronomical cost of dental school is really a drop in the bucket. Um, I, I, I put more of the blame on dental schools and I'll speak specifically for Pennsylvania because we have three dental schools, Pitt, Penn and Temple. And there's also um, Lake Erie College of Medicine also does some dental rotations. Um, so we'll say three and a half uh, for the three main dental schools. A lot of states that only have one dental school show preference to in-state residents. Pennsylvania, because they're dental schools, I think we had a more 50% of our class that was from Pennsylvania. We had a lot of international students. We had a lot of out-of-state students. Uh, they pay our higher tuition. Uh, and from what I've heard there, this, the, the school was also getting higher, uh, not kickbacks, but uh, a higher uh, reimbursement from the government to, to have those types of students in the, in the, in the school. So you have, if you have dental schools that are in the state that are taking a majority of out of state students, then those students aren't going to stay in the state. They're going to leave and to try to attract a, a student or a, a dentist from another state to your rural area, to your state um, becomes more challenging. Mm -hmm. So I think the issue is it's generally cheaper to go to an in-state school uh, that you're a resident of. So if the schools would take more in-state students and in my class, I felt dental school was looking at grades only mm -hmm. and grades are important. Um, you know, your, your intelligence, your, your ability to get through dental school, get through the academics of it is important but dentistry is working with people. Uh, and a lot of those people when you're in the class don't have a personality, can't have a conversation with people to the effect that dental school had to put in empathy classes to teach people how to be empathetic towards patients, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. Wow. So part of that interview process needs to be, well, your grades aren't the best. They're not the worst. I think you can get through dental school if you put the effort in, but you seem like you're a really good person. Uh, you, you seem like you're, you're caring, you take care of people. You can have a conversation with people. You can break it down to, to basic language. Um, if they looked at that aspect also and attracted that kind of uh, student, I, I think that would benefit the in-state access to care issue. So um, to circle back, I, I think dental schools take a lot of responsibility in the access to care issue. And I think it ultimately comes down to money with yeah. how much they're getting uh, in-state versus out-of-state. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So the last thing I want to ask, um, and I'll just, this would be my last question would be, so we've kind of, <laughs> we've kind of almost talked everybody out of going to worlds it sounds like right? <laughs> if you think about it i'm not sure if we said anything positive but i'm, I'm going to give you an opportunity now to basically let us know right because again in, in dental school and so forth we're always taught if you want to make money if you want to have that life work-life balance and everything because i believe you work four days a week 
Uh, we're, we're about three and a half right now. Three and a half, right? That's amazing. Yeah. So if you want yeah. to have that work-life balance, you should definitely go to the rural areas. We have the challenges, but please let us know what are some like the benefits so that any dental student that's listening might say, you know what? Why do I need to live in Pittsburgh when I can live two hours away and then take my Ferrari into Pittsburgh to, uh, yeah. you know, have dinner? You know yeah. what I mean? So maybe let's talk about that, man. So it. If you got into dental school and you made it out as dental school, there's some degree of motivation, self-motivation that you have. Um, while private practice ownership isn't for everybody, I, I think if you want to get ahead financially, short term and long term, uh, ownership is really the best way to do it. Control your own destiny. Be able to invest in the things that you're interested in, invest in the technology, invest in the continuing education. Private practice ownership allows you to do that. And specifically rural dentistry allows that option because you can practice however you want to. Uh, sky's the limit as far as the procedures that you want to offer to patients. And like Walter said, work-life balance, uh, being an owner, uh, my commute to work is five minutes and I see two or three other cars on the ride to work. Um, I can go home for lunch if I want to. Um, I live in a place where I don't see my neighbors and I can go out in the hot tub if I want and not have to worry about somebody peeking over a fence or looking down at me from a, a 20 story building. Um, it's a lot quieter, which again, goes into lifestyle, what you want out of life, but, uh, you have a sense of community, uh, your patients know you. So if you're a good person, um, and you treat people fairly, the money is just a, a secondary benefit to it. So being able to treat people how you want, not worrying about competition. It's not competition. It's community. It's uh, taking care of the people that you see on a day-to-day -day basis um, and practicing and setting up your life really how you want it to be and being in control of your own life. Sky is the sky's the limit. If you want to work seven days a week and crank out as much dentistry as possible and drive that Ferrari, that avail that is available to you. But cost of living is significantly lower than being in a city. So you might not have to work quite as hard to achieve what you would in a city. Um, granted, there, there aren't as many you know shows or restaurants, but uh, a short hour, two hour drive. It's a nice weekend getaway if you wanted to get to a city somewhere. So if you're looking to get into rural dentistry, best way is reach out to dental societies. You know, the, the Academy of General Dentistry, each state has their own, um, own chapter. There is a great resource to, that they can send out emails to, to all their members. The American Dental Association has the same thing. So Pennsylvania Dental Association, Pennsylvania Academy of General Dentistry, or research an area, find an area that you like and just contact the dentist in the area. Hey, this is me. Um, here's a postcard, a little you know, history of what I'm doing. Just looking to see if you're interested in adding an associate or maybe talk about selling your practice. Uh, if you wanted to sit down, have a meeting, see what's available. So finding the area you want to live in and then finding if there's a, an opportunity in that area, because a lot of gen, uh, dentists that are getting close to retirement might just have in the back of their mind, I've made my money. If I sell the practice, that's the cherry on top. I'm planning on just closing my doors. So getting a, a postcard in the mail or a phone call or a letter saying, hey, would you be open to this opportunity? That, that is probably a pre, pretty easy in if you want to go to that area. Yeah, that's what's up, man. I don't you know. know I, I, I appreciate the, the answer to the, the question that I asked. I feel like a lot of people are, especially dentists, feel like everything should be a very specific, um, kind of narrow viewed meritocracy as they've defined yep. it, right? But I think your insight that it's not just about having the 4.0 and that hell with the 3.2, you probably still do just fine in dental school, but what, what else makes you a good um, clinician? Right? So why don't you tell us, and my last question will be like, what are the top three character traits that you think would make someone successful in a rural setting, uh, given the individual cultures of a place like, like Bedford? 
One would be, I, I think a job everybody should have is waiting tables. Uh, it teaches you to talk to people. You're earning your money through tips. Uh, it's being able to read people. Um, so having the ability to talk to people on their level and coming from dental school, we're taught this whole new dental language, all these technical aspects of the mouth and the anatomy. Uh, second thing, being able to dumb that down and say, you know, this is, this is a cavity, this is what's going on and explaining it in a short 10, 15 second clip that the patient's like, oh, okay, I understand what that is. Not trying to sound as educated as possible and, and being above that patient. So being able to talk to them, being able to talk to them in a language that, uh, that they understand and respond to. Uh, third is um, just being an honest person. We all make mistakes owning up to your mistake. Hey, this didn't turn out right. I, this, you know, I made a mistake here. I'm sorry. You know, I'm going to fix this. It's on me. So I have an unwritten warranty policy in my office. If I do a, a crown and that crown breaks the first year, I'm going to replace that crown at no charge to you. If it's second year, you know, I'm going to cover 80% of it. Third year, I'm going to cover 60%. After five years that that crown breaks, I figure I did my job and you did something. So having that conversation with patients that I'm not going anywhere, uh, money isn't the most important thing to me. My reputation and how I take care of you is important. So um, being being a good person and, and you know backing up the work that you do and, and making people know that I don't have all the answers, uh, but I'm willing to you know take uh, take responsibility for something that I may have gotten wrong and help you get to the place where we want to be. That's awesome. And honestly, I, I think we can all agree that that's the qualities you need to have. You need to have period as a dentist. Right. Live, yeah. you know, as, a, or, as a person, or, individual. Yeah. Any person, not just dentistry. So, right. Yeah. So, well, thank you, sir. Really, really, yeah, really, really appreciate you. appreciate you. You know, I know we know that's late where you are, so we don't want to yeah. hold you up. And I know you like to go to bed early like I do. So. <laughs> yeah. And shout out to Leroy. We're, we're still trying to get you to Pennsylvania to, to, to give us some of that knowledge you got. I'm on my way, man. We're working it out. <laughs> That's awesome. That's I appreciate awesome. you. Well, man, hey, enjoy your night, man. We'll talk soon. All right. Have a good night, guys. Take care, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tooth Be Told. The opinions on this episode are just that, our opinions. Please consult your dental professional before taking any action with your dental health. If you have any questions about anything you heard on this episode, please contact us at Real Dentist with an S. That's R-E-A-L, Dentist with an S, at gmail.com. We would be very happy to return any message that we receive because we love the communication that we have with our listeners.